Well, good morning, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And um, we have a jam-packed show again today and really interesting people doing interesting things. So we're going to open up with a fellow named Josh Perry, who interestingly has combined a um, very uh, important announcement about a a, um, report that uh, he's releasing about children in our prisons. And I have to say that I was shocked to find out that we have young people in um, really dangerous, rough kind of places, prisons. And um, he's also going to talk about an art show that is emphasizing uh, what he's announcing. And that combination is unusual and going to be very interesting to explore. Um, and then we have some really kind of out there, interesting uh, performances that are going on at the CAC, and they include building a forest, but not out of trees and leaves, as you can imagine, in an art show. And so we're going to hear about that. Enrique Alvarez, you know, you have seen his sculpture. You personally have seen his sculptures because they're all over the city. He's Mexican-American. He was part of Zapata's revolutionary um, force. And then he wound up in New Orleans just around the time of all the WPA art that was being made, so there's a lot of it around it. There's a brand new sculpture garden that features it that Hellas Foundation that's been doing so much is going to be talking about. So we're going to hear about that. We are going to close this show out with a call to arms to get you all out to vote this Saturday. I cannot tell you how important this election is. It's been kind of a sleeper in the media because they're just not focusing on it. But there is a very, very interesting developments in this election. Some good candidates, but some candidates who are more on your side than others. And we're going to talk about that to close out the show. So stay with us for that. All right. So we're going to kick off with Josh Perry. He's with the Louisiana Center for Children's Rights. So... uh, Do you want to start, kind of just give me a quick background of what your organization does, kind of in general, and then how you arrived at this report about the children in the prisons and um, about this incredible show that has been um, put together up at the Myrtle Banks building in our Cano's Creative Space, which I'm excited uh, to be hosting this show. So go ahead. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm the director. Radio voice. I'm the director of the Louisiana Center for Children's Rights. We're a nonprofit law center based here in New Orleans. We advocate for children in Louisiana's juvenile justice system. We've been doing that for about 18 years here in Louisiana. We want a safe, smart, cost-effective, and fair juvenile justice system that helps young children to, and that helps all children, to advance and to thrive, to stay in school, to access the job market, instead of pushing them out into jails and prisons and the criminal justice system. What I really want your listeners to know about today is an exhibit of photographs that we'll be showing at the Myrtle Banks building at 1307 O.C. Haley Boulevard over the next month, opening tonight and extending through November 20th. And these are some really extraordinary, powerful photographs taken all over the country, but some taken right here in New Orleans, of young people in prisons and jails, including young people in adult prisons and jails. This is a space that we don't usually get a chance to see. We're fortunate enough not to have to see as a society. But right here in New Orleans, we have a prison, the Orleans Parish Prison, which has been called by a federal judge the worst large prison facility in the country. And in that prison facility right now, we're holding upwards of 30 children, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds. These photographs at this exhibit, some of them show these children at the Orleans Parish Prison and show how it is that we are allowing our most vulnerable children to be raised and to grow up. And these photographs are extraordinarily beautiful and they're extraordinarily powerful and they tell us something about our children and they tell us something about ourselves and the priorities that we've had as a society and how we're allowing, again, how we're allowing our children to be raised. So I think it's critically important that everyone who can come over and see these photographs because 
as I say, they're art and they're also a call to action. The action that we're asking of people, we need to come together as a city and say, when we hold children accountable for serious offenses, and we should hold children accountable when they hurt people, when they commit serious offenses, we should do it in age-appropriate ways. And we should never tolerate children to be held in adult facilities where they're more likely to be raped, where they're more likely to be beaten and even killed, where they have a 36 times higher rate of suicide than in juvenile custodial facilities, where they're not being educated, where their mental health needs are not being met. We need to do that. We need to get them out of those facilities. We need to get them out of the parish prison because we care about children and our future, and also because we care about public safety, because those young people come back into our neighborhoods and into our communities. And if they've been cut off from education, if they've been cut off from economic opportunity, if they've been traumatized and brutalized, then they're so much more likely to reoffend, and that puts our safety and our neighborhoods at risk. So everyone needs to take an interest in this. So where are you proposing these children go? Because you're not talking about commuting their sentences, or, um, or uh, you may in fact be. T- we're all talking about that now. We're all recognizing that there's definitely um, people in jail, not just kids, but others who shouldn't be there, right? So what what are you proposing is the alternative for um, throwing them into these prisons with the adults? So let me be crystal clear. Louisiana locks up too many people, and that includes too many children. Our first resort should always be to help young people to grow up in positive ways in their own homes and in their own communities. But Where we make a decision as a society that a young person should be detained, and these are pretrial detention facilities, so these are young people who are presumed innocent. They haven't been convicted yet. They're awaiting trial. Where we make a decision as a society that we believe it's not safe to allow a young person to stay at home and in the community pending trial, and that should be extraordinarily rare, We should hold those children in an age-appropriate facility, not in an adult jail where they're more likely to be beaten, raped, less likely to be educated and taken care of. Fortunately, here in New Orleans, we have a facility like that. We call it the Youth Study Center. What it is, in fact, is a juvenile detention facility for holding young people prior to trial. What we're saying is... If we must hold 15, 16, 17-year-olds prior to trial, wherever they're being prosecuted, juvenile court or criminal court, they are still children. They're still children who are presumed innocent. They're still our community's children, and they should be held in a setting where they're going to be kept safe and where the likelihood of them getting good outcomes in the long term is highest. And that's in a juvenile detention center. So what we're asking the city to do, we're asking the mayor, the city council, is to remove those children from the parish prison, to bring them over to youth study center. Now, that's going to require an investment. That's going to require that we add beds at the youth study center to accommodate those young people. But let's be really clear about something. We're not talking about more jail beds in the city of New Orleans. We do not need more jail beds in the city of New Orleans. And presumably jail beds are more expensive than the kind of beds you're talking about in a youth study center. They could be because of the difficulty of holding children alongside adults. This is the critically important thing. If you are mixing people under the age of seven of 18 and people older than 18 in a facility, you have to keep them completely separate. There has to be a firewall so there's no sight and sound contact. That's a federal law, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, and you could imagine why that law was passed because, as I said, the risk of violence is unacceptably high when children and adults are held together. The parish prison that we have right now is under federal court order to get its act together. As you and your listeners probably know, there's a federal consent decree. Part of that consent decree requires what federal law already requires, sight and sound separation between children and adults. But our jail doesn't do that right now. So it's in violation of that law and in violation of that consent decree. What we're saying is we have to fix that problem. 
Let's fix it simply by taking those children out of that jail. So we're not talking about adding beds. What we're saying is we're going to have to have beds for those kids one place or another if we insist on holding them. Let's have those beds be at a facility that is equipped to do this in the least harmful way possible. So at the, at the youth study center, is there the physical capacity to add beds now, or are you talking about having to expand the facility itself? In all likelihood, we would have to add some beds to the facility. But again, the choice is not adding beds or not adding beds. It's where we're adding them. You hear the sheriff right now saying we need a phase three facility to accommodate special populations, another new jail to accommodate special populations, including children. What we're saying is how foolhardy would it be to build new prison beds at the Orleans Parish Prison to accommodate a population of children, 15, 16, 17 years old, who are so much better off at a juvenile facility than in a criminal facility. We need to make the right investments with our public money, investments that are fiscally sound, that are responsible uses of public money, that make us safer in the long run, and exposing children to these environments does not make us safer, that keep them safe. And we need to make investments that are in keeping with our deepest moral values about what a child is and how children should be treated. We're not talking about not holding kids accountable. We're saying hold them accountable in age-appropriate settings where they are safe and where in the long run we will be more safe. So the program, uh, one of the programs that I work with in my nonprofit side of my life as opposed to my radio life, um, uh, tries to inform our youth in high school about their career and educational opportunities in the creative fields. And so we're in the schools, um, not to the extent that a lot of people are, but we have classes. And and I've had, um, you know, one-on-one experiences with a lot of the kids that are in in my classes. And one class I had, uh, not too recently, I would say almost every child in my class, every student in my class, high school, uh, were living in extremely compromising situations at home. They are in dysfunctional households. Some of them, some sexual abuse, some um, just very difficult circumstances. In in another program, I had a student who we actually opened his eyes to the art world, and he's he's doing incredibly well, Um, but he, he just wasn't living at home. It was just he had to get out of there. How how are you addressing that part of their lives? I realize that's not your program. Your program is to get them out of the prison, to get them in a safe place. But um, I, I don't. I'm not sure I understand how we are really going to um, reverse course or to get a, a, a significant change in circumstances without two things: one, um, addressing the issue of what's happening in the homes of these youth. And secondly, um, the whole economic situation, of course. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of a technological revolution. I say this on almost every show because I really want this to hit home for people, that um, the whole job scene is, is, is vastly different from what it was a few, a few decades ago. And um, we have to be training our kids for this new uh, revolution. And um, we are in the state. We have a new program, you know, the, the CTE program, the Career Technology Education Program is trying to address that. But So I'm sorry, I, I, I veer from your mission, but I know you have to deal with this. You know that this is happening. You're dealing with these youth directly yourself. Um, and what, what's your take on, on, on what needs to happen for them in their in their own lives. So yeah, this campaign that I'm talking about now to remove youth from the Orleans Parish Prison is one of the things that my office does. And folks can learn more about it at our website, www.laccr.org. There's a link there where you can write on the front page where you can sign a petition. In the past few days, we've had more than a 1,000 people sign a petition asking the city council to take this step of removing every child from Orleans Parish Prison. You can go see the photographs, these extraordinarily powerful photographs and sign a petition there 
to help that happen. But another important thing that my office does is that we are the juvenile public defender in New Orleans. We work with about 90% of the children who are prosecuted in Orleans Parish Juvenile Court. That's about 1,000 cases every year, about 650 individual youth every year. So we absolutely see young people struggling with some of the barriers that you pointed to. The truth is that young people in the juvenile justice system need the same things that young people everywhere all over the world and for the history of time have needed. They need a safe place to call home. They need adults who care about them. They need a great education. They need a pathway to economic opportunity. They need a healthy start. They need a chance to give back themselves and to be leaders themselves. Those are developmental supports that every child ever has needed. And certainly, vulnerable young people in New Orleans need those things too. And as you point out, the tragedy here is that so many children are cut off from those critical developmental supports that they need. What we have to recognize as a society is that if we want to reduce youthful offending, we need to invest in those supports. And we have to recognize that when a child does make a mistake, does fall into the juvenile justice system, the best way to help them out is to wrap supports around them and to help them continue that development. The thing about putting kids in prisons and jails is that it literally arrests their development. Think of the things that help children to thrive. The love of adults, of parents exposure to great education, after-school activities that enrich their minds and help them. Those are things, those are exactly the things that they don't get when they're in jail and in prison. And and here's something that that always kind of drives me crazy. You hear a lot of people who are concerned and interested in the youth say, well, you really can't do anything for the high school students. They're they're gone. It's over. We only can deal with the younger kids. And and I, I just can't think that way because I think that at any stage in life, um, things can happen that change your future. And um, so I don't buy that. I, I'm sure that you don't. Look, if that's true, we should all leave New Orleans and kiss this city goodbye, right? Because we're saying that we have an existential public safety crisis right here. And we need to work with the children who are 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. We need to believe that they can develop in positive ways or we will not break out of this public safety crisis. So not only do I believe it, I know it's true experientially, and I know it's true in the data. Most children who are arrested, that's true in New Orleans, and it's true across the country, age out of delinquent behavior. Think about when, if you don't have kids yourself, you know, you and your listeners, think about the people who you knew when you were 15, 16, 17. Think about their behaviors and how those have changed. Josh, I would have been in jail if I was was dealt with the way kids today are dealt with, because I was one of those kids in the classroom who was... Ooh, <laughs> I was part of the, the group that disrupted classes and so forth. Uh, yeah, there's no, there's no doubt in my and, mind. And you and I both and many others benefit from a lot of privileges and a lot of supports that we had as adolescents. And the sad fact is that the children who fall into the juvenile justice system in New Orleans don't. You're talking about a juvenile justice system that is 99% African American. We talk about the children who are held at the Orleans Parish Prison. There is not a one of them right now who is not African American. This is a justice system that targets young people of color and that thrives, really, based on the lack of supports that uh, young people are given and the deprivations that are inflicted on them. We need to reverse those things. So um, I really want to get everybody's attention to go see this show. And I have had trouble getting people to go to the Myrtle Bank School on um, O.C. Haley, quite frankly. We've done some beautiful shows up there and, and not had um, as many visitors as we would have liked, um, be quite honest. And I want people to see this show. And I know that you have a lot of partners and a lot of events planned, so you're going to get folks in there. But please, everybody, pay attention to this. Once again, when it opens tonight, how long it's going to be up, the hours that it's available, and um, 
the one thing I have to tell you is that right now, I know you go go see that building, Myrtle Banks, and it looks like it's closed because the grocery is not open on the ground floor. But you should see the bustling beehive of activity on the third floor, and you can do that by going into the Arado Street entrance. It's a glass door. You just walk in there, get on the elevator, go up to the third floor. It's not that hard. It really isn't. Tell them what they'll see. We're going to have signs up to help direct people also. This is the Juvenile Injustice Exhibit. It's photographs of young people in the juvenile justice system and in adult prisons and jails across the country. It's pictures of us. It's pictures of our kids here in New Orleans as well. It's at the Myrtle Banks building at 1307 O.C. Haley Boulevard. Again, we'll have signs to help you get up there. It opens tonight. It'll be open through the 20th of November. You can walk in there during normal business hours. It's a beautiful, rehabilitated space. Lovely, warm, light-filled, and one of the things that will cause you to ask is, if we can do this kind of rehabilitation for a space that used to be a school building, why are we holding our most vulnerable children in the kinds of airless, stark, bleak cells that you'll see pictures of right in that exhibit. So I'm so happy that we're there, but the fact of being in that space is a very powerful message about where where we need to be and where we need to make investments. Josh Perry, uh, director of the Louisiana Center for Children's Rights, thank you so much for what you're doing and and keep us informed and come back and and update us on what you're accomplishing and and what how how people can help you. Thank Go you so much. see this show. It's open nine to five weekdays. Um, and by appointment, if you want to come in on the weekend, we can organize that. But uh, 9 to 5 business hours every single day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. All right. Okay, folks. And um, now, am I pressing the button or are you going <laughs> to – Alicia, are you there? Yeah. All right. So Alicia – Savoy is the performing arts manager at the Contemporary Arts Center. So we're still on our our cultural uh, conversation, folks. But we're going to get to that election because I am going to hit home with that with you. I want you to pay attention. Um, you have put on a show that you know I've been hearing about it for some time. It's um, how to make a forest, which is a challenging title, very interesting, um, but. But it doesn't really involve real leaves and real trees. Am I right? Right. First off, I'll, I'll just, um, I'm going to correct you a little. It's called How to Build a Forest. Um, oh, I thought that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yes, it's, uh, it's constructed out of, um, a, out of fabric, mostly. So it's uh, found materials. Um, it's a forest that is uh, a very, it's a colorful and uh, sparkling um, uh, construction of a forest. So uh, tell me about the artist. One of them, um, I, I described her in our newsletter as a homegirl. She's from here, Lisa Demore. I uh-huh. actually know her brother very well, also Todd Demore, who's also a, um, a theater maven and, and a fine actor, and um, director Katie Pearl, and the visual artist Sean Hall, and there's a musical component. This is a very unusual and creative combining of different artistic elements to, you know, once again, art is often about delivering a message and there, there is an underlying message about our environment and our relationship to it. Tell me more about it. Uh, yeah. So how to build a forest, um, is was, uh, this response to the, um, ecological consequences of the BP oil spill, um, and hurricane Katrina, um, and they have extensively partnered with um, Gulf Coast uh, environmental organizations and um, environmental leaders, um, which also have they contributed to the performance. And then there are also additional events that are organized with and by these partners um, that enhance the uh, the environmental content of the piece. So there's uh, the Woodlands Conservancy, for example, a studio in the woods. Um, the Gulf Restoration Network. They uh, they are all hosting events during the performance and um, on location outside of the performance, so that it uh, it it adds more richness to the information that's being provided and that contributed to the performance. Describe the performance, because I think this will kind that's of really. That's a big really, part. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah, really it's, interesting. It's, 
It, it is. It's, um, it's, it's an eight-hour durational installation and performance. Uh, so you come into the CAC, and um, if you come right at the top of the performance, then uh, you're walking into an empty space. Uh, and then they, over the course of eight hours, will, put, will build the forest. They will um, interact with, their, with the forest, and then they will dismantle the forest. So um, it's all performative, um, and there is dialogue and sound, um, and uh, it's, an, it's a very visual piece. But, um, but it's unique in the length and of time, obviously, so you can come and go. Um, it's free. So you can come and go as you like. Um, you can come early and see the the building. Um, you can come late and see some final monologues. Um, there and there, and it's also great to go to the CAC website and check the additional events that are on there because that might inform a time that you'd like to go. There's a lecture at 3 p.m. Uh, next Tuesday when it's in, the installation remains up. <clears throat> so. Uh, there's also guided tours that happen. There are self-guided tours. There are leader-guided tours uh, that can happen while it's um, while it's up. So I'm sure all this is on a website. So let's, it is, let's it put is. that out there. <laughs> Tell them what the, it, what it is. It's uh, it's cacno.org, and you can click on how to build a forest. Uh, it should be on the main page. So what are the hours? I'm, I'm a little bit. Um, how long does it take them to go from empty space? to finished forest, and then from finished forest back down to empty space? Um, gee, you know, I haven't actually seen the full eight-hour uh, duration of it. But it's eight way. hours. But mm-hmm. It is. It's eight hours. So it starts, um, it opens tomorrow at noon uh, and then closes tomorrow um, for the day at 8 p.m., and that's the same hours on Saturday. Um, and then Sunday, it, it ends about an hour early, but... Um, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, it'll be up as the fully built forest. And then Thursday, there'll be a final performance that starts at 10 a.m. Um, but generally for the next three days, it'll start at noon. Um, and the, um, like I said, I haven't, I haven't sat through the full eight hours to know um, how long each section is. Um, but it'll unfold over eight hours. Well, whose idea was this to begin with? I mean, it, it really is an, an extraordinary mixture of, of elements to um, achieve a, a, a powerful visual, emotional um, uh, message. But but who wanted to do this and why? Um, I believe it started with Lisa Damore. Um, she, and an experience that she had during, I don't want to tell her story for her, um, but I believe it, through an experience that she had um, during Katrina on her family property um, and seeing the, uh, the trees around that property um, come down and um, during the storm. Um, and also uh, Katrina being uh, so closely connected to uh, Louisiana's relationship with, um, with our environment, the wetlands, the, you know, um, the, oil, the oil industry here, um, how, we, how we maintain our coast. Um, and I know that she collaborated closely with her partner, Katie Pearl, um, and she collaborated with Sean Hall, who did a lot of the um, visual design, the, who led the visual design portion of the And then there's a, there's a sound element, so that fascinates me. How does that work? So it's live sound design that happens during the performance by Brandon Connolly. Um, so it's um, it's environmental sounds <laughs> um, that take place live during the performance. So Brendan actually sits in the space. It's not just a recording. He sits in the space and, and does sound during the performance. Does sound. I mean, it doesn't play guitar or violin. What, what exactly do you mean by does sound? Uh, yeah. If, um, so that's a good question. <laughs> um, it's not, it isn't um, instrumental necessarily. It's more... Um, ambient sounds, I'd say. Okay. Um, and is this part of um, uh, any kind of a uh, series that the CAC is doing? You're doing so many um, incredible new events there. It's it's really been a pleasure to to see. And I, I was uh, involved with a bunch of surgeries this spring for 
back and knee stuff, so I haven't been getting out much, so I've missed a lot, but I've been watching the programming, and of course, um, I always invite you guys to come on here and tell our audience about what's what's happening there, but um, give me a little bit of a context in terms of what the CAC is trying to do right now and how this fits into it. Sure. Um, so we have, this is the second show in our full performance season. Um, this is the third curated performance season um, that the CAC has done under uh, the executive director, Neil Barclay, came about three years ago. Um, so the performance season is now curated by uh, Rail Myrick Hodges. We finished one performance so far. There, our opener was Ethel, um, who's a string quartet, um, who performed with a, uh, an EPA-commissioned documentary called Documerica, um, that's with photographs from the 1970s. Uh, and the next piece that's going to happen is uh, Tennessee Williams, The Mutilated. Mm-hmm which is actually being co-produced by the CAC. Um, but um, it's, a, it's a lost and forgotten Tennessee Williams play um, that is being directed by Kosmin Sivu um, with local cast. Um, so it, and there, there are many more performances. There's uh, Croker in December, Soundtrack 63, um, which is being co-produced with Junebug um, Productions in January. Uh, on Martin Luther King weekend, and then uh, Regina Carter is going to perform at the end of the season. So um, the curation is really about having um, some theater, um, some music, um, some performance art in there, um, and being a, a whole snapshot of, of what's happening in performance nationally right now. So uh, I, I just want to, um, on a personal note, Uh, tell you a little story that uh, you probably don't know, but when we were forming the Contemporary Arts Center, and I'm sure you know my husband and I were the founders that brought a group of artists together, and we all, you know, got around the table and figured out how to do this. And um, one of the debates that we had was between some folks who wanted it to be primarily a visual arts institution, and um, my husband and I were pretty insistent that it should be... um, performance as well, basically not to define the arts because um, there, there's so many different ways of, of being creative and, and, and uh, performing and presenting your work. So um, it gives me great pleasure, I have to say, to hear about this performance and others that you were doing as a um, continuing realization of our original vision to um, not define the arts and to make sure that performing arts were included in the mission of the CAC. So thank you for what you're doing and what the CAC is doing. And so once more, close out with exactly where and when. Okay. So it's at the Contemporary Arts Center, 900 Camp Street. Uh, Opening performance is tomorrow, Friday, October 23rd. It runs, it's an eight-hour durational piece. It runs noon till 8 p.m., Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, then it's up as an installation, uh, for as a visual installation uh, during museum hours on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And then on Thursday, there's a final performance that starts at 10 a.m. and runs till 6 p.m. Have a blast. Um, I'm going to try to get in there. <laughs> I love the sound of it. It's just, it's really, uh, it's a trip. And um, <laughs> congratulations on it. And um, everybody, check it out. Get over to the Contemporary Arts Center. I'm sure most of you have been there. I hope that you will, in fact, make a point of getting in to see this show. Um, thank you so much, Alicia. See you soon. Thank you. So um, I think uh, I think my next guest is um, on the phone. I actually cannot um, hear uh, at the moment. So uh, is Jesse Haynes available? I am here. Hello? Yes, I'm here. Oh, hey, Jesse. I'm sorry. For a moment there, I couldn't hear, um, couldn't, oh, yeah, couldn't hear you. Oh, yeah, no problem. How I'm are you? Line. How are you? This is um, yet another um, very exciting uh, venture that the Hellas Foundation has made possible in our city. I, I, I asked someone the, this the question the other day. I said, is there any other foundation in the city that has ever made the level of commitment to the arts that you all have, especially in these past years. And the the answer came back uninformed, but we're not sure. Clearly, um, nobody could think of anybody who's done more, other other than obviously the public agencies that have that responsibility. But the Hellas Foundation, um, Jesse Haynes is the um, deputy director, and she is... um, 
going to tell us about this incredible opportunity for us to see more of the work of, of an artist who has been a, a part of the fabric of the city now for um, 40, about 45 years. Yes, well, we are so excited that the Hellas Foundation Enrique Alvarez Sculpture Garden is finally opening to the public in the Botanical Garden in City Park. This has been the culmination of a ton of work and the vision of City Park and Botanical Gardens for a very long time. Um, we will have an official dedication on Wednesday, so October 28th at 11 a.m., and then there'll be tours of this garden all day from 12 to 4, kind of on the hour. And then starting at 5 o'clock, the Historic New Orleans Collection is offering lectures um, about the life and work of Enrique Alferez himself. And he was quite the character. Um, and what, what fascinates me always about him is the contrast between his personal history, which... Um, included a stint with Zapata's Revolutionary Army in Mexico. But the work that you see of his around town, and, and really, it, it's hard to miss. There, there's quite a bit of it, especially in City Park, of course, is so warm and human and, um, and emotional and calm. The contrast between that and, and what his life must have been like before that is something that's always fascinated me. What do you know about that, Jesse? Well, that's a really good observation, and it's very, very true. I mean, Enrique Alferez definitely had a very interesting life. He was born in Mexico and joined the Army, as you mentioned, the um, Re Mexican Revolution with Pancho Villa until he was about 12 years old, and then he um, came, to, came to the United States and worked in Chicago under the famed sculptor Laredo Taft where while he was there, he learned a lot about what you're referencing, sort of that warm, classical, traditional sculpture technique. Um, he took that, that training, and on his way back to Mexico to, move, to go back home, he stopped in New Orleans, and that was um, the beginning of his lifelong time here. He Isn't that a typical story? So many of us kind of drop in here and then exactly. just never leave. <laughs> <laughs> I think it resonates with most people here. Yeah. He um, came to New Orleans in 1929 and remained here until his death until in 1999. So as you said, I mean, so many people in the city would recognize the work of Enrique without even necessarily realizing that it's his. And so this garden is an opportunity to do some education for everyone and um, show kind of showcase all of the work that we all recognize on public buildings and throughout the city um, that, again, that warm, classical type of work you're referencing that is really just part of our landscape and general conscience here in the city. Um, why, why did the Hellas Foundation make this commitment to do this garden? And again, folks, let me just emphasize that there are Enrique Alvarez sculptures throughout City Park, and, and if you've stepped foot in the park, you've seen them. You've even seen them. Uh, one of the pieces that I always think is so prominent and easy to see is on um, Poydras Street in front of the um, American Bank. Uh, I don't remember the exact address of it, but if you drive down um, Poydras Street, uh, the the big red building is the one that has um, uh, his sculpture in front of it. So that one's very prominent. It's throughout the park. But you're adding 14 pieces in a special area dedicated to him. Why, why did you guys decide to do this? This was such a fantastic opportunity for the foundation because, as I sort of referenced before, the cultural legacy and heritage of Enrique Alvarez is truly woven into the fabric of the aesthetics of the city, as well as City Park. And um, we felt like this was an opportunity to recognize an artist who has contributed so much to the cultural tome of our, you know, our unique cultural heritage here. And as you've referenced, again, the, um, the, the two large pieces, and I always talk about the same ones, Jean, um, in front of 909 Poydras are very recognizable, as well as the facade of Charity Hospital, all of the benches in City Park, 
the um, gate on Tad Gormley Stadium, the Molly Marine sculpture downtown on Canal, right off of Canal Street. All of these things are these recognizable pieces in the city that everybody says, oh, yeah, of course I know who that, you know, of course I know what that is. But they don't necessarily realize that all of that work was done by this one man um, as he led WPA projects throughout the city. So having an opportunity to purchase works from his estate and bring them together and then also repair and restore works um, was just a very unique opportunity that we knew we had to seize upon um, because this is creating a very special space that will, will kind of memorialize the cultural heritage of Enrique. So we have a caller. Um, so let's hear what the uh, caller would like to uh, ask uh, you. Um, uh, Keith, are you there? Yeah. How, you, how is everyone feeling this morning? Doing good. What's what's okay. your question? Okay. Is this the same person who may have life-size art decals on buildings where the Native Americans are greeting the early settlers? You ever seen that kind of, Can you still hear me? You're talking about a mural. There's an art deco on these buildings. It's this stone. It look like the early Indians are greeting the early settlers. Uh, you know, there's one piece, um, uh, like Jesse, I think. Building. Which the, building? I'm sorry, say that uh, again. You might see this art deco, etched in stone, lifelike, Indians greeting the early settlers. Yeah, Bienville. Yeah, I, I, is yeah, that yeah, that statue yeah. on um, on uh, St. Peter's Street? Yeah, you might see it on Charity Hospital or some of these old courthouses. Oh, yeah. Is that the same person? Go ahead, he's, Jesse. He's a Mexican brother? Yes. Yeah. 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 And you, 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 his work is a life like etched in stone, Indians greeting the early settlers. Yeah. Yeah. That, yes, see, you're absolutely right, uh, especially if you're talking about in front of, city, of um, Charity you Hospital. You see this on the outside, on certain sides of Charity Hospital, mm-hmm. and certain sides of the courthouses. Life like etched in stone. Native American greeting the early settlers. Real life life. We've been looking at it for years. <laughs> That's right. Is this, is this <laughs> the same person, Enrique, somebody? You know, PBS did a, a thing about him one night. Hey, Keith, um, uh, I'm fascinated that, that you noticed. Ms. Jean? Yes, you sir. Might, you might see that art in California in certain cold fields and hospitals. His work is all over America on those old buildings, 1940s, the WPA time. You're, you're he doing that time, doing his work at that time. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I'm. You know, he might do that all over America. Do you like it? It's beautiful. I'm just saying, it's beautiful. It's lifelike. I mean, it's real lifelike. It's etched in stone with a Native American greeting early settlers. But what I'm saying. What you see in, in New Orleans, his work in New Orleans, is just the same person, I think his name is. Y'all just say his name. But it looks like his work is all over America on these buildings in the, during the 1940s when some of these early courthouses being built at that time or places like Charity Hospital was being built. Those, that, that beautiful artist on those buildings. It might be the same person. You know, you know what, Keith? Um, thank you for your thank you for your question, your call. I really love that you appreciate this work. But but let me com- let, let me just yeah. Let me just say this to you though. Um, I'm I'm sure, and and maybe Jesse, you know the answer to this better than I do in terms yeah, of no, the, the work the that. Time, but I was just trying to give him this short about this guy. I think his name is Enrique. Enrique Alvarez. Okay, yeah, here, yeah. Here, here's the thing. Let me let me let me just say this. Um, thank you, Keith. Let me just tell you this: that um, Enrique's work, and Jesse, you can add to this, is definitely beyond the borders of New Orleans. But during the 30s and 40s, there was something called the Works Progress Administration of the federal government. And in order to help people during the Depression, including artists, they commissioned works on public buildings all over America. Those were the days when federal government uh, welcomed the idea of actually extending a hand and, and, and getting people um, engaged in, in, in work, uh, whether creative or otherwise. So some of that work, yes, is by him. 
and some of that work is by others. Jesse, would you want to add to that? Sure. Um, definitely Enrique Alferez was, as you just mentioned, he was one of the most prolific WPA artists in our country working uniquely in New Orleans. Um, so from that the time period of the WPA era, he was working almost 100% here. Um, I'm sure he had commissions elsewhere, but he was leading, you know, thousands of people working, men and women, in mostly City Park, building Tad Gormley Stadium and doing, all, as we mentioned before, the gates and the freeze work on that stadium. Um, Gene, obviously, you're very intimately aware, with Pop, aware of Pop, Pop's Fountain. He um, built that and did all the sculptures in there, as well as, of course, all the benches, all of the bridges. I feel like it always must be mentioned that the bridge um, facades, like, you know, on both sides of each of the bridges carved through City Park are some of the most recognizable works of Enrique Alvarez as well. So all of that infrastructure that was being built in City Park in this time frame really was under the purview of Enrique. And, um, you know, aside from the actual capital project building everything, he was um, the one who was leading the kind of artistic efforts to really beautify and make all that infrastructure unique and, and particularly unique to City Park. And there there were, of course, some other artists, and there's a woman artist who did a lot of that work as well, and I'm, I'm having trouble grabbing her name. Do you recall it? You know, I don't know. Yeah, there, um, there's a, there's a, know. there's a woman artist who worked closely with him, and she was involved also in, in some of the bench designs and the bridge designs. Um, so she she was part of his team, so to speak, of yes. people who were working yes. in the park. But I think this is so exciting that you've brought all these pieces together in one place um, so people can really experience them as, as a um, uh, in, in just in a real three-dimensional way, not just uh, on the infrastructure, but um, walking around and, and enjoying it. And landscaped, I understand Robin Tanner, the landscape architect, has done some of the work, so I'm sure it's really a beautiful setting. And a botanical gardens is so beautiful anyway. We we all of us uh, appreciate and enjoy it, but this is a, this is a wonderful expansion of it. Who, whose idea was this originally? Do you know? Um, I know that the director of the Botanical Garden, Paul Soniat, who's been the director since the very early 80s, I know that this has been a dream of his for a very long time, and I'm sure of their um, of the Botanical Garden board. Um, and so I think, you know, finding all the pieces and putting them all together it took some, quite some time. Um, but then when we became involved as the funder and the pieces were identified that needed to be purchased and then the other pieces that were identified throughout City Park that needed the restoration for purposes of bringing them into the garden. I think that all, when that all came together, that was about two and a half years ago. So it's been a long time coming. Uh, and, 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 of course, um, the Hellas Foundation's involvement in something like this is, is more than as just a funder. And your background in art history is an important part of that because um, you know, clearly the projects that you've done at the CAC, at the Ogden, and with the sculptures uh, that uh, Michael Manjaris has worked with you to put around the city, that's, that's so much more than just being a foundation and supporting and responding to, uh, to other people. So um, I, I just want to say thank you to the Hellas Foundation for, for making Polsoniat's dream come true and, <laughs> and to really uh, bring out um, this, this beautiful um, work in one beautiful setting for people to enjoy. Now, explain to folks exactly, there, there are different ways to get into the Botanical Garden, so explain exactly the location of this and how you get in there. Sure. Um, well, and it's really exciting, too, for the Botanical Garden because their board and their uh, volunteers have been working extensively on a new entrance area to their garden. So the Botanical Garden has been very busy lately. They have, um, they'll be opening, I believe, in late November, the sort of new front entranceway of the garden. Um, and so if you, you know, you'll, you'll be treated to a whole kind of new new scene when you go. But um, the way to access the Botanical Garden is to go down Victory, which is the street that you're going down in City Park. To the left, you'll see um, City Putt, where the former tennis courts were. And on the right, you would see, um, you know, you're kind of behind Noma, and then you're turning. And you would see the beginning of, like, the Pavilion of the Two Sisters in that area. 
to the right, there's going to be a beautiful new entrance to the Botanical Garden, as well as the Enrique Alvarez Sculpture Garden. So is it kind of um, in the back of the, of the um, I don't know that back is the right word, but um, let's say it's to the north side of the, of the garden? It, yes, it's interesting because where it used to be, where the garden is located, you can actually see the shrubbery. Like you'll be able to see the um, the hedge line because you're drive when you're driving down Victory, it's directly on your right, and then you come up and you can park, you know, along there, and then you enter the garden. So when you're entering the botanical garden main entrance, you would take a right and you'd be immediately in the Enrique Garden. So, it so and there's no there's no uh-huh. Is, is there an additional charge uh, for this section of the garden? No, it will. Um, there'll be, you know, it's the regular admission to the botanical garden, and then we are all working together right now to identify um, free days for the Enrique Alvarez Garden as well, because we, um, it's a very important to the foundation that as many people who want to see it and enjoy it are able to do so. That's so great. We're um, hoping to announce, you know, get all that straightened out as soon as we get the garden open and up and running, um, you know, we're excited to figure out the day and make sure that we put that out there so people understand what day they can come to the garden and, and enjoy it for free. And just remind everybody, so um, on, the, on the day that this opens, which is next Wednesday at 11 a.m., and um, so there's a dedication, and that's, you know, dedications are sort of formal moments, but they, they're also kind of emotional because it is, as you said, the culmination of years of work usually. So uh, when you dedicated the Linda Bengliss sculpture in the park by the lake, um, I think there was a lot of, you know, really strong feelings in the crowd, happy to see it <laughs> ha- right. happen. And see that water pour over the sculpture. That's a beautiful yes. fountain, by the way, everybody. You've got to check that out if you haven't been out there to see that yet. And and to see this happen is going to be an, an important moment. But that evening also you have the talks. And so I just wanted to touch on that for a minute. Sure. Um, that evening at 7 o'clock in the Pavilion of the Two Sisters, there will be um, two talks. Um, they're about... 20 minutes each, and um, people have the opportunity to hear Katie Fole, who is the New Orleans Museum of Arts Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art. She'll be discussing Mexico and New Orleans, Enrique Alferez and his world, and then she will hand it over to um, author and historian Katie Bowler-Young, who will be speaking about Enrique Alferez, his life and work. Um, Young is actually working on a book about Alferez and his life and sort of the man um, in addition to the work and the legacy. So she'll be really, I think it'll be really interesting to hear from both of them. And then uh, a wine and cheese reception will follow. So the Historic New Orleans section is excited to to, to host that and, and bring everybody in to learn more. Sounds like it's going to be a great day, October 28th. 11 a.m. starting at 11 a.m. The talks start at what time again? The, the, excuse me. The talks start at 6 p.m. Okay. And, and then after that, everybody, this is going to be there for you, uh, for the citizens of New Orleans, for the family. Um, Dr. Tlalik um, Alferez um, is going to be there for the – his daughter will be there for this moment, so it's going to be a, an important moment for her as well. Thank you so much for what you do for the city. Thank you, Jean. It was great. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care, and we'll see you soon. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, um, I want to close the show today. I have a little bit less time than I had hoped for uh, with um, Professor Ed um, Shervenak. And um, I asked you to come on, Ed, because, you know, for some reason, this election, which is a hugely important election, is, is is not getting the attention it deserves. And I think a lot of people, judging from the fact that there was a slower turnout for the um, early voting than usual, um, uh, folks in New Orleans maybe don't feel that connected to it because a lot of the candidates are from upstate. But there's a, there's a difference between all of them, and some of them are very capable, but some of them uh, have, you know, very different policies. And I, I just wanted to kind of give people a better understanding of the issues that are at stake and how this election is going to affect our lives going forward. So would you please highlight for me some of the key issues that we're dealing with today in our city, in our state, um, that are the reasons why people need to get out to vote this Saturday? Well, uh, thank you for having me on your show. And um, I think the the biggest issue 
is out there is um, uh, budget concerns. Uh, we seem to have a state budget that is uh, structurally deficient. Um, we're basically not taking enough re revenue to deal with our problems. We're not able to deal with our infrastructure. Uh, we know our roads are in terrible shape. Uh, higher education has taken significant uh, hits on the budget. Um, yeah, like $700 million worth of hits, right? Yeah. And, I mean, that's uh, enormous. In terms of and, and access to health care uh, as well. And so, uh, you know, there's a question of whether we should expand Medicaid in the state. Um, that is uh, a popular uh, sentiment among people, you know, when we, when we poll people on whether they should ex expand Medicaid, 60% say yes. I, I, I might uh, use a stronger word than sentiment because, again, uh, I, I've heard varying numbers, but it's between three and 400,000 people have no health insurance because the sitting governor, or I should say the traveling governor, um, has refused to uh, sign in for that program so that they can get that. And that's something that um, should be a deciding point with, with the gubernatorial candidates that are being considered. Yeah, they, uh, all of them support the expansion of Medicaid. Um, a couple of Republicans say, well, you know, we need to basically add some qualifications to it. But for the most part, I think uh, that that is going to happen, um, regardless of who elected um, I don't know but it's but, also a I mean, question of how it happens and I think some people are talking about some kind of a private process I'm not sure that would be as beneficial as the way the law was uh, originally structured to offer it but um, yeah that might be a, a drill down but tell me what other issues how about education how about incarceration um, you know? there's a, a recognition that um, we cannot incarcerate our way out of um, our, our crime problem uh, Louisiana doesn't just leave the country in incarceration rate, it leaves the world. Um, we have the highest incarceration rate uh, of any other place on the planet. And so there's a recognition that this is a very costly venture. Uh, we need to reform uh, the criminal justice systems in terms of penalties, say, for nonviolent crimes. Um, the problem, of course, is that there's a pretty strong prison lobby in the state, and uh, we have a number of private prisons, and so uh, that's putting pressure uh, against reforming the criminal justice system. So we're going to have to see how that plays out. Yeah, that lobby, those lobbyists are always a, a drag on reform and getting things right. Um, maybe not always, but a lot. Um, uh, what about um, c Common Core has been uh, something that's, I think a lot of people still don't understand exactly what it means, and and uh, I think there's been more kind of bad information out there about it than good information. How, how, how does that play out amongst the different candidates? Well, uh, you know, that, that, that particular issue is, you know, being dealt with uh, through Bessie, and, of course, that's been one of the driving issues of those particular campaigns. Um, so Bessie is, is the State Board of, of Education. Uh, pardon? Yeah. I was just reminding everybody that Bessie is the State Board of Education. Yes. Um, Common Core is basically a, a set of standards that has been established by a multi-state consortium. Um, and the goal is to kind of unify the standards across the states so, so that we can see how students there in Louisiana, say, compare to students in Iowa in terms of meeting these standards. It's, it's not about curriculum. It's just about meeting certain standards. Now, the argument against Common Core uh, is that this is just one more intervention by an overbearing federal government to impose its will on the state, and that we know better how to educate our students than, you know, say, someone in Washington, D.C. And so uh, that's the real divide here. Um, it seems like there are some kind of misconceptions about Common Core, uh, that it is not curriculum, it is standards. And so uh, most of the Betsy board members and the State superintendents support Common Core, but um, there's a number of politicians who do not. We're almost out of time, um, Ed, so I just want to um, underscore education, prison reform, higher health, ed, healthcare, figuring healthcare. out health care oh, reform. I mean, there's lots, lots of, you know, coastal restoration, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood. There are lots of issues out there um, that need to be addressed. And, 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 and from what I'm hearing, 
a surprising development in this election is that, you know, initially everybody was saying, oh, Vitter, 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 Vitter. He's going to just get it. We know, well, sometimes things don't turn out the way it looks like in the beginning. And lately I've been hearing that there is actually maybe some chance that our governor's office could go blue, that we could be a blue state. What do you think about that? Uh, We'd be I'm the first one in the South plans, to flip. To be honest. Uh, I, I, this is a bright red state. Um, we saw the early voting where Republicans were far more likely to turn out than Democrats. Um, and so it, it, it strikes me as kind of uh, a stretch to think that, you know, all, all of a sudden we're going to shift to being a blue state and elect a Democrat. Well, opponent. maybe we were not going to shift. But you said that the most important thing you said is that the Republicans are coming out to vote, not the Democrats. That's correct. Um, I'm going to um, assume that um, I, I hope I have listeners from both sides, and I hope that we'll be working together more and more in the future. I think everybody's sort of tired of the standoffs. But um, if there's a chance of getting uh, at least some of these policies affected by votes, you have to vote. So, guys, please, Saturday do get out to vote check out the candidates go online and 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 do your job to affect your life and the life of your kids in our home and our city and our state that's gene nathan and this is a crosstown conversations and um vote 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 bye